schlesisches Tor. Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD title. Und zwar ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht sagen. Spargel-Weltmeister ist China, denn die bauen 60 Mal Hey, this is Ted. Hi, it's Michelle. Hi, it's Isaac. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. Yep, we're joined here by producer Isaac on the mic again. So thanks for joining, Isaac. And welcome, all listeners, to our second premium episode. Um, thanks so much to everyone that supports us on Patreon. It's a huge help, and we really appreciate it. And we're excited to bring you yeah, our second premium episode. Today, we've got, I guess, a bit of an intense topic. Uh, we're discussing the Nazi history of some well-known German companies. I think this is like pretty widely known about, at least in the abstract, the fact that like many big German businesses did have Nazi ties. And, you know, there's some like famous examples that people talk about. Um, but we wanted to dive into a bit more detail and actually discuss some kind of like specific firms that you may not know about, or at least details of some well-known firms that you might not have heard about. This week, we all picked one company of interest. I chose Hugo Boss. I chose Bayer. And I chose Dr. Utka. And for the next premium episode, we want to cover some audience selection request companies. So if there's a German company you'd like us to look into, you can send us a message or comment on this episode on Patreon and we can research it for part two. This being our first real foray into a solidly historical topic, I do think it's important to start with a bit of background. The Nazi past of these firms is, of course, hugely discussed and hotly debated topic in the historiography of it alone could take up multiple episodes. Maybe we can get into some more of that later, but just briefly, the ties between the Nazis and big business were, of course, huge, both as the Nazis rose to power and during the actual war effort. Some businesses supported Hitler during his rise, largely as a bulwark against communism. And of course, many more got on board once he became chancellor. During the war itself, many companies, either directly or indirectly, supplied the Nazi war effort and employed slave labor extensively. About 12 million foreign forced laborers, that is non-German forced laborers, were used in Germany. That totals up to roughly 20% of the total workforce. So yeah, like the individual businessmen, you know, their actual direct involvement in the Nazi regime varied a bit. You know, some... Um, turned a blind eye to what was going on, just sort of went along with it. Others were really directly involved, were like in the Nazi party, in the SS, um, directly oversaw the forced labor. Really, no one was innocent in a way, almost no one, unless you actively opposed it because everyone benefited in a way from the regime. But, you know, there there were different, yeah, di different levels of um, complicity in the Nazi crimes. And so when the war ended, some of these companies were broken up. Um, IG Farben, probably most famously, the giant chemical conglomerate. Um, but, you know, a, a lot more weren't and became an important part of the West German uh, Wirtschaftswunde, the economic miracle, in the 1950s. For example, like steel giant uh, Krupp was left largely intact. Uh, Siemens, Volkswagen, of course, famously founded during the Nazi period. Deutsche Bank, um, these like huge companies you hear about today uh, that were part of, um, were very closely related to the Nazi regime. And they just all existed and are now here like corporate behemoths to this day. And interest in the topic of like the ties between German business and the Nazis picked up quite a bit in the 1960s when there was like a general society wide effort to reappraise the history a little more. The first real report on a specific firm was published in 1987 from Daimler about their use of forced labor. And since then, it's become pretty common practice for companies to commission a report 
from a historian or a historical agency um, or university. You know, there, there's a few big ones. Um, the GUG, the Gesellschaft für Unternehmensgeschichte is like a big one. The Society for Business History. They do quite a few of these. Um, and, and yeah, a lot, of, a lot of firms and organizations are currently doing this and they usually fund it themselves. Um, for example, even like the university I have worked at um, is currently commissioning a report due to the origins of their foundation money from a department store chain that sort of Aryanized itself and profited a bit from some of the expropriation of the Jews, or that's all being investigated as part of this, this commission. And so in one sense, this is good that companies are coming to terms with their history a little more, right? I mean, it's hard to argue with that in principle, but the practice of the companies actually commissioning the reports on their own history, it does raise some problems because first there's sort of an issue of incentives for the actual historians at work there. If you're thinking about making a career out of writing these sort of reports, um, or at least it's a big part of your career, historians I think are inclined to go a little bit easy on the companies um, sort of like a the the phrase that's used for like government documents is a limited hangout where you give enough information to be credible, but not too much, and to give away stuff you don't really want to give away. And of course, they always say they're academically independent and so on, and they're given full access to the archives. And like, I think I generally believe that. But if you're a historian doing this, and this is a semi lucrative thing that you're doing, you're not going to go too hard and be too damning about one company because then another company is never going to hire you. So there's like this middle ground. And, and a lot of historians have been criticized for not digging deep enough into some of the history and not not really being condemning enough of their ties to the National Socialists. And I think also in a way that when the companies fund it and they fund, you know, these historical reports about their own crimes, it gives a veneer of benevolence to the companies themselves because they're praised as coming clean and doing the right thing about the past. It's really all part of this broader narrative about Germany, um, that this country is the one, you know, that's properly addressed its history, it's reckoned with its past and so on. And, and that applies even on the individual corporate level for these companies that do that. And it's a bit odd to be to be celebrated for basically doing the bare minimum to uncover what in many cases are heinous crimes rather than their financial success largely as a result of some of these heinous crimes. And just as an example of what I mean, just pulling a couple things from English language media. Um, for example, Deutsche Welle a few years ago wrote, Audi comes clean about its Nazi past. Um, the local Germany used the same language. Hugo Boss comes clean on Nazi past. And uh, another Deutsche Welle article says another German company reveals its Nazi past. Um, this one, Dr. Utka, so the, some of the companies that we're covering here. Um, and, you know, praising them for really doing the right thing and uncovering it and like doing like these, you know, these bold truths that everyone's coming to terms with. Um, the New York Times wrote, Germany's second richest family discovers a dark Nazi past as if it's the sort of thing that they like just passively came across rather than something that had to be known to some extent within the company of, of where your main money came from. And so it, it, it really paints it in this very positive light. And we're going to look into that a bit and, and kind of take issue with this framing that, you know, of course, it's good that some of these reports are being published, but who funds them and how and how they're written isn't always to the standard I think we would hope for. Yeah, and the German media, too, it's always mentioned in the same breath, like, oh, praise for the company commissioning its own report, and then look at all these atrocities that they uncovered. But first comes the praise of, oh, wow, they're, they're reckoning with their past, and like, they're part of our beloved soziale Marktwirtschaft. They, had, they know their role in, in civil society, and it's... it's Right. And they might return like a little bit of art or do something like that. But it sort of seems like they win from this period twice where it's like it can boost their business. And then they end up doing quite well and getting all these contracts and establishing the foundation for their success post-war by committing all these atrocities or being complicit in them. And then they publish a report detailing all the terrible things they've done. And then it's like another PR boost somehow. It, it's a, it, it seems a bit perverse. Yeah. 
So, should we get into the firms now? Um, Isaac, do you want to take us away with everybody's favorite aspirin company? Uh, yes, I would love to talk about Bayer, which um, remains one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, uh, chemical and pharmaceutical companies. And as you mentioned, Ted, yes, uh, very well known for aspirin, which it uh, trademarked in 1899 um, after it was developed uh, by chemists in the company uh, shortly uh, before. So the company was uh, founded in 1853 um, and among uh, its products, including aspirin, um, it also introduced and marketed heroin uh, for the first time to a worldwide audience. Um, and it marketed it from 1898 to 1910 as a cough suppressant. Um, it also, of course, has um, produced and marketed countless other pharmaceuticals, including many birth controls. Uh, I was reading on the Wikipedia page that the Flintstone like gummy vitamins, vitamins, <laughs> vitamins um, are owned by Bio. Big hit. Yeah, I mean, now, of course, the company has acquired many other um, sort of subsidiaries, I guess. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they are sort of behind a lot of very everyday products. Um, for example, in 2014, it acquired Merck and Co's consumer business. So those brands owned by that company include Claritin, Coppertone, and Dr. Scholl's. In 2018, it acquired Monsanto. That is a cursed matchup. Yes, yes. <laughs> very, very cursed. Uh, yeah, I mean, perhaps didn't learn from from its history but uh <laughs> so yes it, it was active uh, in in germany and, and and sort of built it up to be one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world um, by the early 1900s uh, and then in the 1920s it became part of this conglomerate that ted mentioned in the introduction called ig faben uh, with five other uh chemical companies in, in Germany. So that was in 1925. Uh, and at one point, it was the largest company in Europe, largest company of any kind in Europe, uh, and the largest chemical and pharmaceutical company in the world. And in the 1930s, chemists from the company won a Nobel Prize for the discovery of the first antibacterial drug. So, you know, a lot of good things. We love, we love our aspirin. I love that. We love our antibacterial. Sounds like they're on a pretty good streak. Yeah. yeah, what came next? Pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, what came next? So, so one of my uh, sources that I consulted for this episode was uh, written by friend of the pod, Victor Grossmann, who wrote an article about the history of Bayer and IG uh, Farben following Bayer's acquisition of Monsanto back in 2016. And in his piece, he wrote that uh, during the early 1930s, IG Farben, which included, of course, Bayer, became the single largest donor to the election campaign of Adolf Hitler. Although it was slightly reluctant at first because some of its key scientists were Jewish, in the decisive year before Hitler won power, IG Farben donated 400,000 marks to him and his Nazi party. This was amply rewarded. IG Farben, with Bayer, became the largest, single largest profiteer of German conquests in World War II. Right at the beginning. Huh? Yeah, in there it, we are. <laughs> in it right from the beginning. Um, yes, yeah, so as uh, part of the IG Farben conglomerate, the Bayer company was complicit in uh, many crimes of the Third Reich. This is taken now from the website of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, they say that in its most criminal activities, Bayer took advantage of the absence of legal and ethical constraints on medical experimentation to test its drugs on unwilling human subjects. So these included paying a retainer to SS physician Helmut Vetter to test rutinol and other sulfonamide drugs. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but testing drugs on uh, deliberately infected patients at uh, multiple concentration Ugh. camps. And it just gives you chill. Like I, I hate, I hate this stuff. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's really disgusting. It's it's really awful. Um, and the Memorial Museum goes on. They say that the company was particular, particularly active in Auschwitz. Uh, a senior Bayer official oversaw the chemical factory in Auschwitz. Um, and most of the experiments were conducted in Birkenau in Block 20, the women's camp hospital. There, Wetter and Auschwitz physicians Eduard uh, Wirtz and Friedrich Entres tested biopharmaceuticals on prisoners who suffered from 
and often have been deliberately infected with tuberculosis, diphtheria, and other diseases. Just looking at the concentration camps where they were active, where it's like Dachau, Auschwitz, Buchenwald, where it says on your notes here, like it's like a you know when a, a fashion company will be like Tokyo, like London, New York, and oh, like try to like show off that it's active in like all the top spots. This is like <laughs> that, but for Nazi businesses. That's that's quite bleak. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's bleak. Um, yeah, I mean they were just sort of completely leaned in. It seems to the kind of fuckery that they were able to get away with um, during this period. And it's not just like, oh, we produce something that the Nazis use. It's like we are enmeshed in every single step of yeah, like just the willing, process, the annihilation of willingly. And obviously, you know, these people must have known it was happening in these concentration camps if they were so connected with these physicians and they were overseeing the, the chemical factories uh, at Auschwitz. Like they knew it was going on um, and were... Uh, yeah, willingly, you know, testing these drugs on, yeah, unwilling participants, uh, on, well, on prisoners. Um, and yeah, it says often deliberately infecting these prisoners too um, with, uh, yeah, with these diseases. And uh, we mentioned the use of, of slave labor too among German companies at this time. Um, so of course, that was also the case with IG Farben and Bayer. Um, so it's by 1943, almost half of their workforce consisted of slave labor, um, including 30,000 Auschwitz prisoners, which I, if I remember correctly, they used, yes, in that, uh, they had a chemical factory at actually at Auschwitz, at the concentration camp. And uh, they also have connections, of course, with sort of the most notorious, well, a chemical, the most notorious chemical that is used at concentration camps, this being uh, Zyklon B, Cyclone B, um, which is not actually developed by Bayer, but was developed by uh, Degesch, which was uh, a num another member of the IG Farben conglomerate. Um, so this Zyklon B was used uh, in concentration camps to kill roughly 1.1 million people in, in gas chambers. So they had like, yeah, this is fucking grim. Like they had basically full vertical integration on like every level of the Holocaust. Like yeah. both using the people as tests for their products, using slave labor to produce them and using, making the chemical or at least a, a partner of theirs yeah. making the chemical that then killed people at like, so yeah, literally every step of the process, they were somehow involved. Yes, and um, people involved in IG Farben at the time did receive some consequences following the war. Uh, 20, uh, 24 members of the company were tried in Nuremberg, uh, and 13 of them were found guilty on at least one uh, of the counts of the, the indictment. So that yeah, included planning, preparation, initiation, and waging of wars of aggression, uh, war crimes, crimes against huma humanity, enslavement, slave labor, terrorization, torture, murder of enslaved persons. Um, so yeah, really just sort of the worst of the worst. Uh, yeah, and as I said, 13 members of the company were found guilty of at least one of those um, counts of indictment. And what I found sort of most kind of concerning, well, I mean, more than concerning, that seems a little bit too light of a word, but most, most horrifying, I guess, um, and this ties in, I think, with sort of what we were saying in the introduction about uh, sort of, yeah, the, the sort of historiography and sort of how these, the history of these companies is told and remembered and how, you know, some companies maybe kind of use this to almost, yeah, have kind of a second boost in a sense where they, you know, when they sort of come out with, with all these horrors, uh, then, yeah, they're seen as being sort of somehow virtuous or, or, or what have you. I mean, it seems like Bio did not actually really go that route at all. Um, they've actually haven't apologized at all officially for um, what what happened. Uh, they actually distance themselves from, from I mean, of, of course they're gonna distance themselves from it, but they, uh, I, I saw, I was when I was doing some research, I saw that just earlier this year in May, the official Bio Twitter account sort of clapped back to a tweet that like called out Bio for their complicity in, in Nazi crimes by saying, we have a long history and are always improving upon it, but today's Bio is not a successor of IG Farben. We'd like to invite you to read up on our history with this document. So which I then went to go to the document. And so the only, uh, the closest they get to mentioning any involvement in the ho Holocaust on their like official history section of the bio website, they say in 1936, the National Socialist government began systematically preparing for war 
When the Second World War finally broke out in 1939, the locations of the Lower Rhine Consortium were among the sites of German industry that were considered vital to the war. Production requirements grew steadily, yet more and more employees were drafted into military service. For this reason, foreign and forced labor laborers from the occupied countries of Europe were brought to work in Leverkusen, Dormagen, Elbefeld. Love that passive Edingen. voice. Yeah. We're brought to work. Like it's it's. Oh God, that that's interesting. I didn't. Uh, yeah, I sort of was criticizing it from a different angle, right? Of just like like you said, yeah, kind of using this like uncovered uncovering of the past as a PR stunt, and this is like just going full denial. Yeah, like, it seems like they really wow. have, which is kind of wild to me. I, although there is some kind of like contradiction because on their website they basically deny it and they spe they also specifically say concentration camp prisoners were not employed in the lo lower Rhine sites. I mean, I don't that's a very specific kind of sentence. Okay, not employed in lower Rhine sites. Yeah, but, <laughs> but not hiding anything here with our <laughs> But in 1995 the CEO of Bayer did give a public apology. Um, but it was it was at a public event where Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel was speaking, and so the CEO of Bayer um, sort of apologized to him specifically for mm. the history of, of the company. But I mean, there's been no kind of company-wide apology or anything so like that. So like a hyper-limited hangout in this case. And in fact, um, so one of the people who were uh, uh, imprisoned following the Nuremberg trials uh, where 13 members of IG Fabin were found found guilty of involvement in Holocaust crimes. One of those men who were imprisoned um, later became a very prominent person in uh, the company after he was released from prison. This is again picking up from the Holocaust Museum website. They say that by the mid-1970s, Bayer, along with uh, two other companies that were part of IG Fabin, had returned to economic domination, aiding in the German economic miracle and re-emerging as one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. Bayer, however, did little to come to terms with its Nazi past. Fritz Termeyer, who was one of the men accused of war crimes for his actions at Auschwitz, was elected to Bayer, Bayer's supervisory board in 1956, a position he retained until 1964. So, you know, well into, yeah, sort of the post-World War II uh, Germany. But I'm sure it's like the only prominent Nazi that held a p prominent position yeah, sure. in post-war Germany. Like, this must be an exception. Yeah. I don't think we should worry about it. <laughs> Won't look too much into that. Wow. That yeah, not nice. great. Nice. Well, thank I, you. That was that was uh, pretty brutal, but very good overview. Yeah, I felt like um, Bayer was a little bit low-hanging fruit because um, I obviously knew that they had sort of done some fucked up stuff during the Holocaust. Uh, but, like, it was way kind of more horrifying than I sort of could have imagined. Well, yeah, and for something that like, probably like half the world has one of their products in their cabinet at home. And like, it just seems like for all those like heinous things, like what are their consequences? Like 13 people out of a giant industrial yeah. conglomerate go on trial, like some of them serve almost no time. And now the company is one of the biggest in the world. It's just like, oh, okay, so that, that all that stuff didn't really matter that much. I just find it so fascinating the way that section from their website was written like, oh, well, we had the companies and we were seated in the Rhineland and which was really then, valuable to the then war, war happened <laughs> and this this war, it needed the companies like it just, it just so yeah, it's taking no responsibility at all. Not mentioning like you funded the guy that started right, it to get right. into power, man. Like it didn't you didn't just get swept <laughs> up into this thing like. And I mean, yeah, just like that tweet that they made where somehow they've like done this mental gymnastics where they're like, well, Bio Today is like totally not connected to Ige Fabin, like totally separate. <laughs> Their social media intern is some like right wing, like base Germania <laughs> guy oh, who God. like tweets like the, <laughs> the giant eagle all the time on his private account. I mean, probably. Is it my turn? It's your turn. Okay. The company I chose, Hugo Boss, is kind of memeified in the sense, at least on Twitter, I don't know how widely this spreads, but pretty well known to have collaborated with the Nazis. And the general sense that people have is that Hugo Boss designed the Nazi uniform. Okay, like it's it's kind of like one and of these like specifically the SS one, right? Specifically the SS one, and it's a popularized thing that people say. Like people, you see again and again, 
a, an image of the SS uniforms and people will be like, did you know that Hugo Boss designed this? And like, isn't that horrible? It's actually not true. <laughs> not Hugo Boss or his company designed the uniforms. The company was one of many that manufactured uniforms for the SS, but it followed like a standardized pattern. Um, there were also rumors kind of swirling in the in the present day that Hugo Boss himself was Hitler's tailor, also not true. So it is kind of interesting that these ideas can take such a strong hold in the other direction of like being a bit sensational. It's sensationalized what um, what role these companies play. You know, yeah. like it's not... Well, and I didn't even actually realize that because just in my like research into a few different companies, like it seemed like they were like among... Like on these lists of oh all these companies collaborated with the Nazis, it's always like Hugo Boss, and then it says like they designed the uniforms. Like that's I think they like. designed the Wehrmacht uniforms, like the gray ones, oh, but the okay. black SS ones that everyone thinks are like oh damn those like well it's Nazis it's bad but they did look no, kind of sick. They didn't they didn't design that, like, them. They, they didn't design those ones. They didn't design any. They just manufactured them. And like hmm. there there were a bunch of kind of mid sized companies at the time producing textiles that produced uniforms and Hugo Bosses was one of them and it kind of turned into this clothing label brand whatever after the war but to back up a little bit so, so that's just I wanted to start with <laughs> what um, people's impression is however Hugo Ferdinand Boss with a name like that probably Nazi <laughs> and he did sounds like a guy with great politics yeah. he did join the Nazi party in 1931 again at the beginning ha having started his business in 1924 um, he was the son of I believe clothing manufacturers and kind of sounds like he flunked out of an apprenticeship he was kind of always banking on taking over his uh, parents' business in Metzingen. What I wanted to say before going into just some statistics on Hugo Boss is that in reference to what Ted was talking about earlier with these companies commissioning their own reports and funding these reports themselves, um, Hugo Boss, the company, suppressed a report written by in 1999 by Elizabeth Tim that they had commissioned and then once it was done they refused to like publish it and so she went on to self-publish this first report and then later they commissioned another report which is um, one that I read the kind of English summary of and I found it to be quite the back and forth like that in, in an attempt at nuance it almost obscures <laughs> the main point of this company used forced labor, right? Yeah, they sort of like, they sort of use like nuance as a way to whitewash, it seems like. They're like, oh, well, on one hand, on the other. And it's like, they kept saying like, not the, really two hands. <laughs> they kept saying, oh, well, the company tried to get better food. Um, they tried to feed them more. Actually, on numerous occasions, they, they were seen making attempts at, at feeding their workers. And you're like, okay but they went like this guy hugo boss being in the nazi party had connections with the gestapo and actually himself went over to poland to select workers that he wanted in his factory right so like total direct involvement and then so much of the report being about well what were their exact uh working conditions yeah and you're kind of like Mm. Like they had better rations than Auschwitz. Like it was really a lovely place. Yeah, like, or like how are, how is that your defense? Yeah, well, man? well that's like, like I didn't read this in my summary of the the bio stuff, but that that Fritz Termeyer, who was the one who was then on the on the board of bio like after the war, after he was released from prison following the Nuremberg trials, um, he his defense of the use of forced labor in uh, in the bio. Um, production. He said, forced labor did not inflict any remarkable injury, pain, or suffering on the detainees, particularly since the alternative for these workers would have been death anyway. So yeah, it seems like they almost saw this as like, 
like doing them a service. No, exactly. And and in in one of these passages, there's actually um, a woman who she ends up killing herself, but she tried to request time off to go see family back in um, Nazi occupied Poland. And they said, no, she went anyway. She ended up being deported to the camps. And then Hugo Boss himself, like, used his connections to get her out of the camps and back at work. And that was seen as saving her. And like they, they just the way that they talked about it, they were then like missing the forest for the trees a little. The, at, at the Hugo Boss factory that was producing these uniforms, not only for the SS, but also for Hitler Youth, they had about 140 forced laborers, mostly women, working there. And in in 97, when they commissioned this first report that they then ended up not publishing, it was because a until then unknown bank account was uncovered in Switzerland that the company had held and kind of like, it came to light that they like had this account with, from nazi era and then they're like oh well we're commissioning a report (laughs) Mm. (laughs) right and this is like a great example of like a a company that really like rose to prominence during the national socialist period like some some were like just huge industrial conglomerates pre-hitler and then just sort of like collaborated and then didn't really weren't really influenced that much but like i i was just reading um about about boss as well and in 1936, their revenues were 200,000 Reichsmarks. By 1940, due to their production of uniforms for the SA, the SS, the Hitler Youth, um, and then later the Wehrmacht, their revenues increased to 1 million Reichsmarks, so went 5x in four years, due largely to their cooperation with the Nazis. So, like, that, like, set them on the basis for later success, you know? So it's it's like... It's not only, you know, oh, they sort of tolerated the regime. It's like this, like, this, like, boosted them to prominence and and really kind of, yeah, like I said, set them on their footing for the future. Yeah, he, like, used his party connections to get orders for his company um, right at the beginning. Oh, the other thing that I should say was that after the war, Hugo Ferdinand Boss stands trial um, during the denazification processes and... At first, he was kind of categorized into this second tier of um, was a party member and lent financial support and was like was like very clo- had very close ties. And then he kind of got that argued down to being a follower, one of these like Mitläufer. And I think that's also an interesting distinction to have happened at that time because he was so clearly supporting the party. Like he was so clearly a believer. Wait, so he went to Poland to get forced labor for his company yeah. and he's just like, he's Oh, it's, he, he wasn't, he, his heart wasn't in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, so slap on the wrist, really. He had to pay a fine and, um, that's that. And he dies in 1948 because of a, tooth infection and leaves his company to his stepson Eugene Holly, whose sons Uwe and Jochen Holy Holy um, took over in the 70s and made the Hugo Boss brand into what it's known as today, which is like a worldwide That's great. I saw <laughs> Yeah, and you know, and again like on the level of atonement here, I just pulled up a New York Times article from 1997. Uh, Siegfried Boss, uh, descendant of, of the original, Miss Herr Boss, um, said, Of course my father belonged to the Nazi party. But who didn't back then? The whole industry worked for the Nazi army. Again, just being like, oh, no, I was just along for the ride. I wasn't like, you know, we, we just happened to increase our revenues 5x from having yeah. excellent connections to this due to my grandfather whoever it was like due to his 
ideological sympathies and political loyalties to a fascist genocidal party. But no, 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 that's just, it's just what everybody had to do. It wasn't a big deal. Don't worry about it. And it's like they got all of these contracts really early on due to the political allegiance. It wasn't just like they just needed anybody to make a uniform and just like it was all hands on deck. Like this is early in the 30s before the war started yeah. that they're working for the Nazis. Yeah. I can't get over. I cannot get over the th- the part where they're like but they fed their workers though and you're like yeah so they could show up to work like what i uh, right i saw another (laughs) one of these maybe it was boss maybe it was another one but it was like the middle management like the the head of it was like a hardcore nazi and wanted to like not feed the russian pow's and the middle management was like no 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 we like we gotta feed them more uh, like, just like obviously, just trying to get more production. Like, they don't care. Yeah, so they can but physically But then the, work. the top guy was so ideologically different, driven. He was like, "No, like the Russians cannot become accustomed to Western European food, and like, like oh underfed them so much that it actually hurt the production." And you're like, "I mean, I don't. There's no good guys in that scenario, obviously. But like, that's the like." To the extent that anyone was feeding anyone above starvation wages, it's so they could keep getting production to keep getting right, more money. Right. Like it's not, it's not some benevolent. It's thing. in their own self-interest, obviously, that they have nourishment. It's not. <laughs> yeah. It's not out of any that goodness is, of their hearts. That is, yeah, that's bleak. Another, yep, well-known global company full of Nazis. At least back then. We're not implying anything about their current workforce. <laughs> and yeah, it's funny with that one, right? That like, the, like every, I think like the average person or at least like the average like Twitter brained person would be like, oh yeah, Hugo Boss, Nazi uniforms, designed the black Nazi uniforms, like the SS ones. And it's like, they like remember, like you said, it's kind of a meme, this one thing that actually isn't true. And then they like remember like the kind of like fashionable part of it. And it sort of almost seems like decent PR for the company to be like, yeah, those like, those pretty uh, slick looking black uniforms <laughs> like those those were the nazi uh, those the, that was hugo boss's production but then it's like no 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 they actually they actually didn't design those they just made them made a bunch of money off of it using forced labor so people don't remember the really grim part even though they kind of vaguely know that there were nazi connections all right are you guys ready for dr utka everybody's favorite frozen pizza brand all right, Dr. Utka did not actually start out as a frozen pizza company um, in the German Empire in the 19th century. I don't think there were a lot of frozen pizzas yet being eaten. Um, it not was even on the by... Eastern Front? <laughs> it was founded by Dr. August Utka in 1891. The product that made them famous was Bakken, which was like a bit of baking powder, like kind of a cake, basically like a cake mix. Um, that was real revolutionary at the time. <laughs> But not basically. His son eventually took over in 1944. I'm sorry, you still use Bakken all the time. Did you just hear what Isaac said? Well, that's what you like. How do you bake? I like, use baking powder. Like I, a... I use Bakpulva, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you can still buy like Bakken. Yeah, yeah, they still make oh, it. Like, there's no. <laughs> I didn't. I've never heard of this. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was just like a blip on the radar of, of uh, no, you can still culinary. Like, buy at, at Deva, you can still buy Bakken. Yeah. Wow. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, and so the Herr Doktor August Utka, he uh, <laughs> died as a result of the First World War. Um, it was then, the company was then taken over by the person his wife remarried um, for a time period, who was also a rampant Nazi, Dr. Richard Kazalowski. And he ran it until 1944, and after that, Rudolf August Utka took over. Um, both Rudolf and Richard were ardent Nazis, joined the Waffen-SS in the 30s. Uh, they were very active, um, and so, yeah, big big Nazi ties, whether you're looking at the actual bloodline or the marriage line of who ran the company. For example, um, in 1933, there's a quite jarring picture that we'll maybe put in a document and link to a couple of these. Um, in Bielefeld, their headquarters in Bielefeld, in 1933, there is a giant swastika lit up on top of the Utke Halle and a projection of Adolf Hitler on it and hundreds or maybe even thousands of people marching with torches 
um, in a Nazi parade in front of the Dr. Utka headquarters. So again, 1933, this is very early on. This is not just like conscripted into the war effort. And there's a poster uh, from the war. And it says, Dr. Utka, Pudding Pulver für die Wehrmacht. Uh, Dr. August Utka, Bielefeld. Uh, so bragging that they supply pudding powder for the German army. Uh, during World War II. So again, this is not just, oh, shoot, everybody had to put hands on deck. It was a war. What are you going to do? So Utka himself was actually arrested by the British in May of 1945, but he was cleared in the denazification trials and returned to lead the company two years later. And so it's a... This is the you know, son. The company... The son. This is the okay, son. Just yeah. So sure there's there's the original the original is August yeah. Utka and then Rudolf August is the son. Okay. And so he takes over cuz he he led the company through part of the war. And so this this company in the Nazi period was considered a model Nazi company due largely in part to its like very paternalist structure. This was pretty common. This was true with Krupp Steel as well where they had like this like kind of integrated, like the, the workforce lived there and they were all kind of run and like supposed to be held to, to very high moral standards. And there was this like huge oversight. Of course, like they worked together. Of course, no, no unions allowed in there at all. Um, none of none of that. Um, and and this idea that like through work and like production, it could all lead to this sort of like pure moral outcome. And so it was deemed a, a one of the first like ideal Nazi businesses, which was a thing, in 1937. And so, you know, also, also like, very, very stringently anti-union, anti-communist, which is another reason for their ideological affinity with the Nazis. It seems that they didn't use forced labor to a very large extent. I mean, there's some, there's some debates over this, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't look like that was a huge part of their business model during the war itself. However, um, Rudolf August, the son, um, he happily bought a villa in a prime location in Hamburg at a very affordable price, uh, previously owned by a Jewish man who was driven out of the country. Um, also bought uh, neighboring properties, which were also owned by a Jewish family, and of course fired all of his Jewish employees during that time. So, you know, this is, again, very, uh, very happy to profit off of the Holocaust and um, the the fascist anti-Semitic regime of the Nazis, even, you know, if the, the ties were slightly different compared to other companies. And so the company does really, really well after the war. Um, you know, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar firm now, still um, not actually publicly traded. It's held in a limited partnership. And Utka died in 2007 at age 90, leaving eight children from three different marriages it seems like these like right wing German business moguls like really like having tons of marriages, but I guess that's probably happens everywhere, right? Because the uh, actual Springer guys they they love doing that too. Um, I don't know if he married his his neighbor though, and so you think, oh wow, eight kids, their inheritance is going to be real paltry. Well, no, um, eight of them. If you divide twelve million by eight, you still end up doing pretty well for yourself. Billion. Yes, twelve billion. Sorry, twelve billion by eight. You still end up doing pretty well for yourself out of that. Well, I'm reading that and his son Richard Utka, as of October 2021, has a net worth of two point seven billion U.S. dollars. I mean, honestly, he's probably pretty bad at business then, because if you got like, <laughs> no, I mean, if you got like one point five in '07, and then you're only up to two by 2021, like this is a he's a he's a fail son, fail grandson, kind of. In between, fail grandson. And so, if you look at uh, if you look at um, Mr. Utka, the second one, we'll also link this picture. He just looks like a textbook villain, like a bald kind of like skeleton of an old man smoking a pipe. Is this photo I have? And so, this is again in terms of people coming to terms with their past or not. Um, they were widely praised for, you know, acknowledging their history. So um, August Utka, the, which would then be the third the, um, who ran it, ran it for a while after his father um, ran it from his father. He said, quote, my father was a national socialist. He said this to Dietz Zeit. Um, now that we know the facts, the fog has lifted. And I saw this quote being like, my father was a, was a Nazi. And he, I saw this in like, dozens of different papers, you know, both English and German, being like, wow, he's like finally come to terms with it. 
And there's this other very weird way that in somehow the children of these Nazis and the grandchildren are almost themselves framed as the victims for like they had to endure like the heaviness of the past and the uncertainty and they wouldn't talk about it. And like, what a burden to know that your fortune comes from like war crimes and forced labor and contracts with the Nazis. And it's always, they're always the protagonists of the story, not the actual victims, which I find like generally very insulting. And, and you see that a bit with them, like, wow, the heaviness we had to carry. Like when we learned about the crimes, we all turned white was another one of these quotes. And it's like, I don't care how you've like emotionally reacted. You have over a billion euros yeah. in net worth for not lifting a finger from a company that profited from the National Socialist regime. Like, why are we supposed to empathize with you? And so, yeah, this idea, now that we know the facts, the fog has lifted. Well, is that really the case? So in the 60s, uh, Rudolf, Rudolf August Utke, he donated an art gallery to his hometown of Bielefeld um, because he wanted to preserve the memory of his stepfather. That's Mr. Richard, oh, sorry, excuse me, Dr. Richard Keslowski, who led the company during the Nazi era and was also, of course, a staunch Nazi himself. And so there were some big protests for that, but the Richard Kozlowski house stayed there for three decades. And in 1998, um, there was a red-green government in the city, and they actually got rid of it. And then Rudolf then took all of the pictures and picked them up. And he said, we don't want anything to do with the city anymore. Um, and he saw a sort of like disloyalty in the decision. And he said the withdrawing the pictures was a defiance. But, you know, he still said, oh, no, we can't uh, we can't actually return the pictures. That will have to be decided by the next generation. And so it's like, oh, yeah, they're really uh, they're really coming to terms with this horrible past, aren't they? Um, that will have to sorry, be decided did... by the next generation. Like, <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's sort of like, I mean, have you seen all these quotes from Merkel right now, like coming out of the COP26 or whatever in Glasgow, where she's like, the youth of today it's need to really yeah. pressure the politicians to do more about climate change. Oh, it's like, are you serious? Like, <laughs> yeah. And I should be I should be clear here that this is this is the older saying he was withdrawing them as a defiance, but this is his son who then, you know, the, the third generation who later ran the company, he's saying, I can't simply ignore what our father told us to do. That will have to be decided by the next generation. So this is like uh, effectively the current generation. I think he stepped down recently and it's in someone else's leadership now. But like the idea that the fog has lifted and they're not returning most of this art, you know, there, there's been a couple, a couple pieces that are returned, but most of it not. Um, you know, are you really reckoning with the past at that point? Or is that just a PR stunt? Um, so some of these pieces were returned in 2017, very isolated incidents, sort of in the same way that uh, that Isaac was mentioning with some of the apologies. And again, you get this fawning coverage. Artsy.net said, Dr. Edka is showing the world what to do with Nazi looted art, but only like one-off things. And in case you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm being unfair, you know, they, they, this, they probably just don't know what to do with the art. They probably feel bad about the Nazi past and don't want anything to do with that. To this day, a bronze bust of Richard Kozlowski, the uh, president after the original August died, and as I said, a staunch member of the Waffen-SS and a Nazi, still sits within the company headquarters in Bielefeld. So if you work at Dr. Utka in the headquarters, you get to see a prominent Nazi when you walk in. So, yes, uh, another great example of a German firm coming to terms with its past. We should say, too, for like non-German listeners, Dr. Dr. Utka as a brand is ubiquitous. It is oh, yeah, everywhere, it's like one of the, right? Like uh, Internationally, too. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, international? Like, I, oh, yeah. In like all the time at least 50 up. countries. Oh, yeah. 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 They're kind of iconic yeah. in, in all their little baking knickknacks and all that it's it's a very i associate yeah, they own as, hotels i think they own radeberger beer i mean I'm oh seeing, this is the other on thing the wikipedia here on stanberg australia so this brazil is, lithuania have you seen these posters South Africa, they're everywhere have you seen these posters around berlin that say stop drinking shani because dr utka is a bad oh, company no. and drink oh 
What's sorry? And drink this like uh, beer that's echt solidarisch instead. Okay. Have you guys seen this? It's like it's. I haven't. There, I haven't there's no. kind of a, a mini. I see it on a lot of Spätis. A campaign to get people to stop drinking Stani because it's associated with. So Stani is owned by Dr. Lefkoe. Like mm -hmm. That's what I always get because it's the cheapest. Well, yeah. What's the ex solidarish beer? It has a comment on. I see the label in my head, but I don't know what it's called. It has like a little comment. You'll see the poster now that I told you about. Oh, Schulteis too. So I mean, it's it's all it's all of the Radebega brands like. Which includes uh, Schufferhofer Weizen, Schulteis, Sternburg, Jever, uh, a couple other ones that I don't know that well. Oh, that's so much. So much. <laughs> what about Bex? Can we drink Bex? Can we? Probably something else weird about Bex. And there's probably something bad going on there. They own it. Yeah, they own a bunch of hotels in different places. It's a huge company, and it's not. And the thing is, we don't actually know how big their profits are because it's a limited partnership, so they don't have to report it. Mm. So this has obviously been uh, been a pretty heavy topic, but I think very interesting and worth covering. Should we close out with a a little as much levity as you can have with this topic, courtesy of Vice.com? Let's do it. Okay. So this is what well, this was Vice's question of the day from 2013. I don't know if they still have this uh, this feature online. And the question of the day was, will you boycott Dr. Utka now that you know it has a Nazi history? One of its ex-chairmen was a leading Nazi supporter, and another volunteered for the SS by Zafar Hassan. And so this is kind of like a man-on-the-street interview type thing. And so I will, I will read it and, and interview, and then I'm going to respond to my, to my, in, uh, my, my interviewees here will respond to my question. Dr. Utka, there's a little intro here. Dr. Edka is the German foodstuffs company that makes those restaurante pizzas that taste a bit like someone has glued some cheese to two discs of limp polystyrene. Do they taste like that? I can't have cheese. They're not very good. <laughs> Besides the pizza, they're behind a whole range of powdered dessert mixes and baking ingredients. And as it transpires, also had some very strong ties to the Nazi party before, during, and after World War II. So it goes. <laughs> uh, what are you going to do? One ex-owner, Richard Kozlowski, was a leading supporter of Hitler, and another, Rudolf August Utke, volunteered for Hitler's SS and joined the Nazi party in the 1930s. This has all been exposed by Rudolf's son, current chairman, August Utke, uh, because, according to a company spokesman, quote, the business felt it important to be transparent about any mistakes that were made in the past, set the facts straight once and for all, and do everything to prevent anything like the Third Reich happening again. <laughs> Sorry, but that's um, just like the most basically phrased. Like, yeah, press it. like I, that I sounds it. like some it. intern. <laughs> Tip tap type that They're up. Like, <laughs> corporate copy is like, we firmly believe in not having another third rank. Yeah. Reassuring. <laughs> yeah. Wait, but, but was it exposed by the sun? Like, did the sun come out? No, this is just like a no. I think he was he was the chairman when there was enough pressure, and then they commissioned one of these reports, okay. and then you know it's it's like I said, sort of right. a limited hangout, and uh, but clearly the son doesn't feel that that bad about it. He wants to benefit from the the PR gains you can get from doing this, which is exactly what he's doing. So continuing here, which I suppose is a decent thing to do, but is it enough? Does coming clean about their past? There's that phrase again, coming clean about their past absolve all those evils? Or is it just a cynical ploy to curry favor? London, will you boycott Dr. Utka now that it has a Nazi, now that you know it has a Nazi history? So here we are on the streets of London. We're, we're approaching Sarah. So Sarah, will you boycott Dr. Utka because of its Nazi history? Oh, I love Dr. Utka pizzas. <laughs> But did you hear that they used to have links to the Nazi party? Oh, my God. Really? I don't love them anymore. Is that true? <laughs> yup. The owner in the 1930s was a member of the SS. Would you boycott the pizza now? I probably would. I've got Jewish heritage, so I hate Nazis. Well, most people hate Nazis. It's a difficult one because that was a long time ago and pizza is my favorite food. Maybe I'll sit on the fence. Thank you, thank you, Sarah, for your for your input. Um, we'll 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 await your final final verdict on uh, on whether you can eat Dr. Utka pizzas or not. All right, 
Now we're uh, we're approaching John Smith here. John, uh, how do you feel about eating Dr. Utka? Uh, it depends how good the pizza was. You're not a fan already? I'm not a big fan of the Nazis. <laughs> I wouldn't go in the shop and buy the pizza in the first place if I knew that it was like that. All right. Thank you, John. <laughs> next, uh, next respondent here. We've got Emily. Emily, how are you feeling about former Nazi ties of Dr. Utka pizza? I wish I, could do, I wish I could do a British accent. You can try. <laughs> to be honest, I don't eat frozen pizza. We make our own. <laughs> we just lost all of our British subscribers. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That was horrible. <laughs> how do you how do you feel generally about big companies who have links to horrible things? Does it matter if their product is still good? I try not to go to places. <laughs> okay. I try not to go to places that I know have a reputation. But what does she mean to go to places? <laughs> Where is she going? <laughs> going to the... <laughs> okay. Just a reputation in general, not even a Nazi one. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about bad things? Do bad things make you feel bad? This is quite the question. I try not to go to places that I know have a reputation, but if he was a supporter of the Nazi party, does that mean he made a compulsory payment that everyone in Germany had to, what is this girl talking about? Nazi Steuer. Um, or did he vote for them once and that meant he supported them? The word supported isn't explained. Oh, well, hard hitting questions here, Emily. Thank you. Um, well, the then chairman volunteered for the SS and the firm apparently profited from its close relationship with Hitler. Well, that isn't compulsory. That's deliberate support of the Nazi party. I would probably boycott him. Okay. Emily <laughs> making a principled stand here. We've got our, Emily knowing a our lot last respondent. We've got our last respondent here. Greg, Greg, are you eating Dr. Edgar pizzas now that you know about their Nazi past? Well, I've never had a Dr. Utka, but they're a different company now to how they were during the Nazi era. I'd probably still eat it, yeah. <laughs> how do you feel about other large companies that have really ties to questionable now. things and are still <laughs> prospering? <laughs> well, I don't really know about any of these things, but now I do. It doesn't really affect me when I go and buy something. I never really think I shouldn't go there or anything. Fair enough. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> what does so, that mean? Who are these people? To the supermarket, I guess. Like, yeah, I never want to hear another British person make fun of Americans and on like person on the street interviews that like don't know that Paris is in France or something. Like this is, <laughs> this is some pretty dumb stuff. Um, well, my official stance on Dr. Edgar Pizzas is just don't waste your time on the Ristorante. Like, if you're going to support the formerly Nazi frozen pizza company, make sure you get the Offenfrische ones. Like, those have a much better crust. They're much tastier. Like, they just don't don't waste your time with the Ristorantes. So, like, that's that's my frozen pizza connoisseur about this matter. Probably other. Like, I mean, I can actually I can actually tell you that. My laptop is currently resting on a Dr. Utka frozen pizza because it was overheating and the fan was going really loud. So we can say in a way that this podcast is brought to you by Dr. Utka. You shouldn't refreeze. No, I also don't think we should say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps it up for three selected lovely businesses. Really, really loved worldwide. I think you can say all these are quite famous and with very dark Nazi histories. Um, yeah, some some pretty bleak stuff there. Um, and very bizarre how little this is discussed in a substantive way. I won't say it's not discussed at all, but to the extent it is, it just feels a bit surface level. And it, like we said, in some ways, a bit congratulatory for these firms in a way that it really shouldn't be. And it doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's been any, any real accountability here in, in many cases. And so, as we said, though, we think this is a huge topic. Like there's so many companies that are implicated in this and it does a good job of really illuminating these ties between some of Germany's dark history and the present day and showing that there really wasn't this clean break. You know, it's not the Stunde Null, the zero hour in, in 1945, like some people claim it was. 
And so we do want to address this a little more and also look into the actual like historical debates on this and the, the criticisms of some of the reports and the institutes that write these reports, because I think that sort of like sort of one step removed from this about, you know, how this fits into German politics and society is also worth covering in addition to the facts themselves. So we're going to do that on our next premium episode. But as we said at the start, if you can send us a firm that you would like us to research, then please go ahead and do that. And we'll make sure to cover it on the Patreon feed next time. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to see what pe- what companies people request that we research about. Try and be creative. Try and make it difficult. Yeah, get us to do some some research. <laughs> Dig through a giant, like, 300-page German festschrift about one of these things. <laughs> it's okay. We're going to handle it. So, yeah, looking forward to those. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Tschüss. 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 Hey, it's producer Isaac here. Considering the fact that you are listening to this, you've probably already subscribed to us on our other platforms. But if you haven't, please consider subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And even better, give us a rating, leave a review, or share with your friends. You can send us messages through Patreon with feedback, questions, or critiques, and we will try to get back to you as soon as possible. Or you can also connect with us on Twitter. We are at Spaßbremse underscore pod. That is S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore P-O-D. And that is it. Thanks again for listening and talk to you next time. Tschüss.